Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. How you doing, Scott? What did you do this weekend? Uh, they're all sort of, they're a weekend. <laughs> they all sort of blend together, right? Uh, Sunday. What did we do? Um, I watched that One World together the, uh, and the Dis- also the Disney sing-along. I watched it all, all of the, the online things. And I have to say, I like them a lot. I, I mean, I don't think I'd want to see dozens of them, but uh, but I thought it was great. And I thought Lady Gaga singing with Celine Dion, singing with Andrew Bocelli. Uh, it was just amazing. That was I liked that a lot. I liked no, Jennifer. You, you enjoyed it? I heard about it. I didn't see it. Why didn't you see it? Why did, well, I'm curious. Just I just can't it. do anything Disney right now. It might no, snap that's not me Disney. out of this. That was, it was like a big middle finger to Trump because it was in honor of the World Health Organization. I thought you might want oh, really? to um, yeah, it's Global Citizen did it. Um, and so it was honor of World Health Organization. And Michelle Obama appeared with Laura Bush. Then there was Oprah was there. Uh, you know, everybody was there pretty much. It was hosted by Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, and Stephen Colbert, uh, who were the three co-hosts. And then, which was, the, it just was like one big middle finger. And then Gates came on, of course, and talked with his wife, uh, Melinda Gates, about how great the World Health Organization is, essentially. Was it a fundraiser? I'm, uh, I'm literally in the I think dark so. Rooms. I think so. But it was like every star in the book, like, kept pull, it, yeah. t- Taylor Swift sang a beautiful song about her mother's cancer, which was about everybody being sick and stuff like that. It was quite, it was quite moving. And it was, it was, a, it was, there was not, a, it was nary a mention of politics, but it was all about politics, which was interesting. Yeah, something tells me they didn't ask Dick Cheney to come play the harmonica, right? They it, did it, not, but Laura yeah. Bush was there. There was, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah, overt. Laura Bush. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'll take Laura Bush right now. She's um, the least offensive person in history. I mean, it'll be interesting to see to what extent that sticks, that people be, continue to film in remote locations or in their homes or in their basements right. uh, versus going back to the studios. You got to think it's just not a great time to own theaters and broadcast uh, facilities right yeah. now and sound yeah. stages. Yeah, it's a pain to go to those things. Whenever I do CNBC, it's like I have to go somewhere. It takes me yeah, it time. It is a pain. You know, a- everyone I know is buying those circle of lights thing, even if you're on the very crude scale. Um, yeah. And and then do, I'm not doing anything. Of course, I want to look just like me. Um, but it's <sighs> an interesting. I'll put a flash. I'll have Alex hold a flashlight over my head. Anyway, um, anyway, it's just it's just it's it is interesting whether we're going to go down downstream, I guess, or downscale, or or simplistic, or Marie Kondo our broadcasting. It'll be interesting. Oh, you asked me what I did this weekend. You yeah. know what happened to me this weekend? What? I was I ran into. I thought, oh, this must be some sort of funeral or parade. I ran into a long stream of American-made cars honking with flags hanging out of them. And you know what it was? Keep in mind, oh. I live in Florida. Yeah. I.e. the the land of the batshit crazy. No, it was a, the it was a reopen protest. Yeah. And I was couldn't believe it. Was it a lot It must have been between 50 and 100 cars. They okay. were very animated. That's, That's like an Italian funeral, but go ahead. And they had hashtag reopen, liberty, a lot of Trump 2020 flags, small business. The most interesting one is a woman had written on her car, small business is essential. And it really just goes, it really struck me, not only the strangeness of it and how I just don't agree with these people. I'm sitting there in my car with my mask on. And it struck me, I have absolutely no idea what America is about. I mean, I'm, I'm, Hang out with you. I read the New York no, Times. No, there's different Americas. A, there's two, like you oh said. Oh, my there's, gosh. There's different Americas. These people live close to me. I don't know any of these people. And well, I, it just struck me 
There's that, two different pandemics happening, and uh, there's two different reasons. And I that's agree. why let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because this a week, um, uh, Mark Andreessen, who is always sort of gets in on the trend as it's happening, as it's typical of him, um, wrote a piece called. Uh, he's an iconic venture capitalist. He created Netscape, the yeah. browser and stuff. He wrote an essay called, and he's been very quiet lately in general. Has sort of been off to his own devices. And he wrote an essay. This is a guy who wrote Software is, Kill- is Eating the World essay a couple of years ago that sort of yep. atta- attracted people's attention. It's called It's Time to Build. It was a rallying cry for big tech over the weekend. Uh, and he implored the lack of preparedness for coronavirus was due in part to a failure of imagination. He critiques huge American issues on housing, education, manufacturing, transportation, uh, and says the problem is desire. Do we need to want to do these things? He said, quote, every step of the way, to everyone around us, we should be asking the question, what are you building? Um, so, you know, and it's, it sort of dovetails with this reopen America is that we got to get back to work. Um, the reason, and then of course, Mark is sort of the, the, the secret of Silicon Valley, like Mr. Secret, like it's the only reason you're not successful because of you, um, which is a very typical mentality, uh, ignoring people's, all people's problems or, or educational levels. But what do you think of this concept, both concepts dovetailing together? Cause they really do in a, in a lot of ways. Well, there's there's a lot of venture firms and a lot of financial firms that sort of don't command the space they occupy. And that is like a Hellman Freeman is probably the most successful private equity firm in the world. But then you have private equity guys who make enough money where they decide the, the key to their life, and I understand this, is to have influence and to be famous. And they start, Ray Dalio, it appears to me, is no longer a hedge fund manager, but a commentator. And yeah. he says a lot of interesting things. He's part of the dialogue. There's nothing wrong with that. It strikes me that Andreessen Horowitz commands more of the space than they occupy. That there's They have some really interesting thought leadership there. But I think I just read an article that says that their performance has been pretty underwhelming the last several years. Yeah. But anyways, I didn't think there was anything that new in it. I thought it was it was well written. The, the piece that resonates with me that he's clearly parroting uh, from everything I've said is that uh, universities that have a thirty six billion dollar endowment and aren't growing their freshman class, yeah, uh, you know that is immoral. That we again, it, it, the interesting thing there is the concept of the most important things in society: healthcare, housing, and education. The things that create a society that feels comfortable that reduces the deaths of despair, which has become a health crisis, is a function not only of what you have, but not having a fear that something's gonna be taken away from you, that you're gonna have access Mm -hmm. to these things. And we not only need to flatten the curve around the virus, we need to flatten the curve around the escalation in prices across all these things. So why wouldn't Harvard using technology decide and say a billion dollars of that $36 billion to quintuple their freshman class? That's what he was making the point. He was making a different point in terms of focus using that money. You're right, 100, 100%, 100%. But why wouldn't they? Well, because I mean, a lot it's of simple. these venture capitalists don't think you need to go to college, but that's another. Oh, issue. that's a, the only venture capitalist that suggests you don't go to college is a guy with a fucking graduate degree from Stanford. Yeah, they are a, so full of, of shit. They all decide that not going to college is a great idea for your kid. It's yeah. for, it's a great idea for your kid. Meanwhile, I'm going to consistently give money to Stanford and MIT and get Joey Marginal, who happens yeah. to have the same last name as me, into school. Boom! That's yeah. America right now. Yeah. Anyway. But there, the reason why is people like myself, and I'm part of the problem, it is really fun to be a luxury brand. I, I have 100, and yeah. I'm bragging right now, I have 170 kids enrolled in my class for fall. Three or 400 kids want to take the class. NYU is going to admit, you know, 2,200 kids into their freshman class at Stern. We should admit 22,000. Mm-hmm. But the illusion of scarcity is the only thing that allows us to charge 
$7,000 per class and 95 points of margin. And if we started building a company where demand, supply meant demand, we'd have to start operating as like a business. And academics have absolutely no, no desire to run an organization like a business because it means we'd actually have to get our heads out of our ass and think about costs and think about value and think about and think about, okay, what are we delivering for this money? Instead, we just massively choke supply, prey on the hopes and dreams of middle-class parents and create luxury brands. We, well, we are no is, longer public servants. Is that, is that, oh, okay. All right, okay, that's a lot to unpack. But is that really what would solve it? Because right now I think they're gonna have a problem getting people to go. Like I was talking about this the other day, someone was asking me, you know, would, would you send your son to school? Not if he's doing online classes, not if he's, do you know what I mean? Like the prices have Understood. to come down. It has to be a better product. Um, yeah, but you're right. It's, in it's, some ways, it's but, but do the, you think it might get it might get go tougher going forward for them to enroll people and have that that, that supply constraint? You think there's plenty of people that will go? The demand for the experience is going to substantially decline if all of a sudden the experience doesn't involve campus leaves and the quad and right. football games. No doubt about yeah. it. But the demand that will likely stay the same and perhaps even increase in a digital world is the real thing that people pay for and the real reason they take out a quarter of a million dollars in loans. And that is they don't go for education. They don't go for matriculation. They don't go for experience. They go for certification. And that right. is by the time you graduate, if your son graduates from Tulane, it immediately says he is certified as a responsible, socialized kid who got in, you know, who who figured out a way to let it, get admissions to let him in, which means that he is certified. And really what we're, there is, the kids and families are paying for is certification. And the boom you're going to see in education if the experience goes down to try and fill that void of margin that people no longer be able to, to, to will no longer be willing to pay is firms that certify people that say, okay, we have tested this person from every angle and figured out and done all sorts of examinations of them and check their background. Unfortunately, what we don't talk about anymore, universities now run crawl checks on every admitted mm -hmm. applicant. Yeah. There are going to be all kinds of businesses other than universities that come in and certify and say, you know what, this kid is in the top 1% as it relates to STEM skills, right. or this person has unbelievable EQ. Because essentially all we are right now is certifiers. We're not educators. A lot of the education is not, it's okay. It's not great. But if if all of a sudden we're going to take the socialization and the experience out of the equation, and uh, and it doesn't help that all these kids are home and the jig is up, everyone is so shocked at how bad these Zoom classes is. What we, what the interesting thing is, or what no one's talking about is, they're not that much worse than the real thing. It's just all of a sudden parents are seeing what actually is going on in these classes, right, and it's right. not what they had hoped. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, though some of them are, I mean, it's just I think do think the 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 way it's done though is a problem too. I think the the the, the format is a problem, and so that's it, it just doesn't work. As in person does matter a great deal in education in lots of ways. In some ways, I agree that there's other ways to do it, but there is some efficacy to being together. There is the socialization element. There's all kinds of things. Yep. I think what's interesting about what you're talking about because you're doing the sort of the same take as Mark's doing. It's like we're not good at what we're supposed to be good at. Right. And so I think what Mark's argument is that why haven't we? I mean, he's 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 simplifying something that's extraordinarily complex in terms of a global ecosystem. But, but it's an approach. Yes, yeah, an approach. Yeah, exactly. So he's Germany, trying to say, yep, go he's ahead. He's trying go. to say, he's trying to say, 
why is China making our stuff? He's sort of doing the Trump version smarter, essentially. Um, or why is why do we not make things? And I think it's it's sort of a, it's an adjunct to his software is eating the world because what's interesting is he was like software is going to ruin your job anyways, and and then he's saying now we should make things, which is kind of an interesting shift. But there's a, a, a lot of it is approach in the way the way we think. We're big we're big fans of winners and losers and creating a competition in a Hunger Games here, where the top one percent and is maybe even isn't even the one per top one percent of kids right. immediately got identified as the winners and we create a slope of trajectory such that they come off the flat top of the aircraft carrier about to hit the speed of sound whereas in germany and canada there really aren't that many amazing universities but if you're a decent student you get to go to the university near you and it's free whereas in the u.s we've decided to stratify the market for universities and create these aspirational universities that are choke supply, are excellent, have unbelievable resources, essentially the Ivy League and then some, a smattering of other schools, and then draw, create that, that luxury brand mm-hmm. status to attract people from all over the world. I mean, yeah. it, literally 17 of the top 20 universities from a stature standpoint are in the U.S. because yeah. we have choke supply. We love it. We're drunk on it. But it should, should it be more like Germany? I've been to Germany a lot. I've spoken to several universities there, and they're shitty facilities. They don't have a brand new gym named after the local venture capitalists, but mm-hmm. they let in a lot more kids, and it's the kids in that part of Germany that get to go. So more kids get a good education, and they don't immediately start stratifying and casting America or Germany's youth. It's like you go to college, there's good schools, there's great schools, but pretty much everybody goes to what's considered an okay school. Where in the U.S., the Hunger Games begins in your junior year of high school. It's yeah. like, okay, where are you going to go, kid? And the trajectory you get out of college is just so important. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's the answer, the German or the Canadian way, but we have chosen an absolutely different system. We begin, we begin this triathlon, this apprentice-like model of competition at a very young age. I also wonder how much, it, just the amount of stress it causes. I see how much stress it causes for my friends and their kids going through this yeah. process. It's really, yeah. uh, it's staggering. Well, we'll see. Now, I want you to respond very quickly, and then I want to get to something that you talked about in No Mercy, No Mouse, about Google and uh, Facebook. But what, what, how do you respond to Mark's idea that we have to make things here in this country? Like, his overall premise is that it shows that we don't make things. You know, he's trying very desperately to keep politics out of it. Like, we've been incompetent. Essentially, we've been incompetent for a very long time, is this, was this, his essential argument. And here's what we need to do. What do you think about that idea? Well, I think there's different ways to look at it. If it's, if it's onshoring around manufacturing, making things and manufacturing jobs have shown themselves to be especially good places to invest long term in terms of employment in a middle class. I think what he was trying to say is across those those really key key components of our society, again, healthcare, um, education and housing, that we need to take, I think what he was arguing for was a little bit was socialism, this notion that all of a sudden people are going to wake up and say, I'm a builder. No, they're not. We're capitalists, and they're going to figure out a way to to, to allocate capital to a project and get more money back. So I don't know how the call to build is going to do much. I think I think the only thing you could do is say, all right, the government is going to figure out a tax incentive such that we massively increase increase the number of new housing starts. We massively increase the number of freshman seats at universities by taxing their endowment if they don't increase the number of seats. We're going to massively increase 
increase the technology access to healthcare such that we can bring the cost down and create legislation that that makes right. it less expensive. But I don't know exactly what he means by this mentality. We all wake up one morning and decide. It's, a, to it's like a silicon. Like we're makers here. They love to call themselves makers. Like when in fact many of them just are are dri- are, are riders upon other people's success. But yeah. it's an interesting. You know, it's interesting because his attitude is quite widespread. One is you forget how much more conservative Silicon Valley people are and willing to make all kinds of compromises, whoever's in office, one. And two is that they, like, the, the idea is going around Silicon Valley that, that this was built in a, in a the, that the virus was built in China in a lab that escaped from a lab. They're just, they're a lot less forward forward than you think. Like, I just, you know what I mean? Like, people are always like, it's so liberal. I'm like, it's really not in any way liberal as a group of people. It's just interesting. It's an interesting idea. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of mentality that they have there. That's good. He did. Catalyzing conversation. He did. Now, by the way, Mark Andreessen did come from, did pull himself up. You know, but not everybody. The Illini, University of Illinois, right? Yes, he did. And it's it's just it's interesting interesting for the mentality of Silicon Valley. In any case, um, let's talk about something you got right. You wrote it. We talked about it on No Mercy, No Malice. Um, Before we have a friend of Pivot coming, it's going to be interesting. Google and Facebook's share of the digital ad market has taken a hit, as we talked about. And then on your blog this week, you talked about search term being down. We talked about this last week, uh, but their share of the market is predicted still at 61%. Um, no major layoffs. Uh, uh, Sooner Pichai said hiring would be slowed, but not no layoffs. I think they're probably trying to figure out where to recalibrate, as Sooner Pichai said. Meanwhile, media companies, as you said, we talked about last week, which are fighting for ad dollars, are facing massive layoffs. Um, you know, Vox Media furloughed 9% of its staff last week. Uh, Condé Nast and Viacom also for load workers. It's being reported that NPR, between sponsorship hit and extra costs because of the pandemic, outlet is facing a 16 to $25 million deficit. BuzzFeed and Yelp, the, on and on and on. Now, listen, will will uh, Google and Facebook start buying up fledging media companies? And also, should there be a government bailout of media companies? Well, uh, yeah, so two things. Uh, the, uh, I'm going to make that noise again. Oh, uh, <laughs> here we go. I don't think... Um, I, I think Amazon and Google, I think big tech is rightfully still worried about antitrust, and they have substantially reduced their 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 business development efforts, as far as I can tell. And acquisitions are down, so we're in the worst of all worlds. We have companies that are monopolies that are not acquiring other companies, so there's no M&A. In terms of a bailout, I actually think PP, um, PPP was a bad idea. I think we're going to find out that there's been a ton of abuse. I'm in the camp. I feel the same way when a company is laying off people or was in tough straits, and that is you can't protect jobs, you can protect people. And I just think we're going to find out there is massive abuse of these programs. And the best thing that we could have done, like that $250 billion PPP package that was gone in like seven seconds, yeah. there's 100 million households, Yeah, by virtue of math, 50 50 million of them or 50% of them make less than than the average annual income. That's 50 million households uh, times times uh, uh, 250 billion. That's $5,000. I just would have given $5,000 to every household that makes less than the median. Instead, they're giving it to these small. But I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of my fraternity brothers from UCLA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of us are millionaires, and I was the only one on the phone that isn't getting PPP. And I understand wow. they want to get. They, I, w- I understand they want to get hold on to employees. We want to flatten the curve in terms of unemployment. But you know what? A crisis is a, t- is a terrible thing to waste. And to be blunt, a lot of these businesses 
have had 11 years of champagne and cocaine, and they should be laying off people. Yeah. The question is, how do we protect those people? So this this bastardized— It is a blunt instrument. That's right. Open to fraud. And, you know, look, Shake Shack gave back money. Well, how did Shake Shack get money? That was—it was an interesting— Columbia's got getting money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's just—we're going to see— uh, that's well, of course, if you're one of those of companies, it. like I wrote a columnist, why not get the money if the money's that's there? That's the attitude. Like, Everyone's like, yep. well, free money. Get your application yeah. in. Do we really right. need it? Maybe, maybe not. Everyone can. I thought about it. I have a venture-backed business, and I thought, well, I get about it somewhere between yeah. 125 and a quarter million. I'm like, well, if the government's giving it away, it feels like UBI. Let's get ours. And they think, well, okay, hold on. Do we really need it? Right. There are some strictures to it, and it's confusing. But I think a lot of people find the entire process confusing. And by the way, there was an interesting map of where the money went. It went to all these states that are not heavy employers. It was in a lot of Trumpy kind of states. It was interesting. There was all kinds of... It was, you know, it, it's not going to be done well if everyone's rushing to the door uh, with their application. And that it should be done in a systemic way. Well, um, and the, that's that's what it looked like. It looked like a crazy rush to grab money. Like, you know, when they throw, like, meals ready to eat off the back of a truck in the middle of a... That's what it looked like to me. They, I mean, they could have... A, they should have put more criteria on in my in my viewpoint. And two... They also, the government, I don't believe in, I think bailouts are really unhealthy. They sh- it should be some sort of very, very incredibly easy terms bailout. I'm not saying not bailout, loans. And that is, mm-hmm. you would have seen a lot less applications that were like, well, this isn't a handout. It's a hand it's up. A and you yeah. got to pay it back at some point. And you can pay it back yeah. over 10 years. It can be interest-free. And they're, they're trying to structure the loan saying, as long as you don't fire people. But you know what? What? The... And this is the thing, and I understand I understand the basic notion here, but the reason America hires more people is we make it easier to fire people. And, and people don't want to talk about firing because it disrupts people's lives, but it's one of our great competences as a nation is we're not afraid to fire people. And I think this was a big opportunity, quite frankly, to that reduce a, really a lot of staff. That is a thing. This is a real, that was, that was, you're right. Other countries aren't like that. You're right. A hundred percent. Do you think the government uh, bailouts for media companies, though? Do you think there should be? Should Jim Bagoff or anybody else who, who has these problems and would go and say we would like a, some money or what? No, Bankoff's rich. He's a talented guy from AOL. He's rich. And the majority of people right, work Bankoff. at Fox. All right. But just like should government bailouts for media companies? hundred percent, no. They should pray, okay. maybe provide some funding to NPR. They probably shouldn't even find that. But they should form. They should force all of us. I'm in the media business. And this is, let's be honest, this is a fucking nightmare. They should force all of us to do something uniquely American, and that is we figure shit out. And mm. you have the incentive. You and Mark Andreessen have the same attitude. That's what he was well, Yeah, but he's, ta- I think he- I'm taking the other side. I'm taking the side of this that people don't want to hear and that they think is hard and cold-hearted. I think every one of these small businesses should be firing people and saying, we oh, need to build, God. we need to build an organization and entities that are, that are soldiers and warriors. And if we were smart and we kept the money and we saved money for a rainy day, which most good businesses do, we can hold on to the most of the people. And some of the people, maybe the bottom 10%, maybe the bottom third, we need to furlough. And those people will be okay because the government is protecting people and ensuring they have a check. I think that's what we should have done. This was an opportunity missed for every business in America to get in fighting shape, Kara to get in fucking fighting shape. Because guess what? This what? shit's coming back, and you coming better back. bulk up and get strong. This shit is coming back. What 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 shit? What pile of the many shits? What shit is coming back? Which crises. Oh, we have crises. been in an eleven year absence of of right. a bull market and crisis. That is not the way the economy works, that as far as not, I can tell. That is not. So look, I I don't. I, this sounds harsh. Some businesses would just be swept off the decks. I don't think that's a good thing. 
But what I see PPP doing is wallpapering over a lot of businesses that only survive in a bull market. And guess what? That's not the way the economy works. We've got to get off this drip crack cocaine of our kids, a future of debt fueled by future that future generations will have to pay back. And let a lot of of these companies go out of business. They'll come back. Neiman Marcus just filed for bankruptcy. Do you see Neiman Marcus? Neiman Marcus just filed for bankruptcy. And guess what? They should. They yeah. should. And there is a bright side to this. I don't. And again, I think everybody should have enough money. I'm starting to become a UBI guy, but UBI uh, as needed, not UBI always. I think we need UBI now during a crisis. But about a third of everyone that walks into a department store on Monday morning says, you know what, I'd really like to do something else with my life. And yeah. there is something about shedding skin. Neiman Marcus should be bankrupt, but it, guess what? It's not gonna, the reason it's bankrupt is not because it's a bad business. It's because private equity guys levered it up. And Neiman Marcus isn't going to go away. The brand is going to stick around. Well, we'll see about that. Brands, lots of brands like that have gone away. That's not actually That true. Neiman That's... Marcus won't go away. It won't All go right, away. Okay. It might, they, might, right. they might use it just to license other products, but it won't go away. All right. Someone okay. will buy you know it. What, you know what I used to call it when I covered retail? Needless it's markup? Yes, exactly. So yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, Scott, I like this, like, uh, you know, doggy dog kind of attitude you have today. When we get back, we're going to have a friend of Pivot. All right, Scott, I want to introduce you to our new colleague, Rebecca Tracer, who is senior writer at New York Magazine. She is the author of the book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to Pivot. Thank Hi, you for Rebecca. coming. I'm so glad to be here. Hi, everybody. So you recently wrote an article that I love for New York Magazine uh, called, and by the way, Vox Media owns New York Magazine, called Enough with the Dick Swinging, which you make a perfect pivot. It's perfect for pivot. Tell us how you really feel about male leadership in this country. <laughs> so, and, and just want to point out, reports are coming out saying that some of the countries with the most success at stemming the spread of COVID-19 are women-led, Germany, New Zealand, Taiwan. So let's let's start with with the dick swinging problem that you you see. Well, so I want to be clear that I don't think that male leadership is inherently like rooted in biology worse than women's leadership and I think that women, you know, female leaders are just as capable of, you know, being dick swingers, yeah. uh, were they were they given the power if they had the same levels of power? Mm-hmm. This is a particular, I was, in that piece, I was reacting to a very particular strain of male leadership that was um, the sort of the power grabbing. And I think that the behaviors that I was, that make me so livid about this, um, this strain of male leadership are born of having had so much power mm-hmm. for so long, yeah, right? right? So that the accumulation of protection of uh, reinforcement of power becomes the goal rather than the service of the people that you're representing mm-hmm. or actual effective leadership and representation. And that's what I was so livid about when I read that call, right. when I wrote right. that call. So uh, so what is a dick swinger precisely? What is? <laughs> just, can you define? And then Scott, I'd like you to weigh in on dick swinging in a second, but go ahead. I'm standing up. <laughs> no, you are not. You are. Ooh, that was bad. That was bad. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think we know what a dick swinger is. It's the guy who um, conversationally or in terms of, you know, how he might legislate or communicate his power is basically suggesting that he wants to put his dick on the table and measure it compared to whichever guy he's arguing with. Okay. And that 
I, I mean, I saw it in particular. I live in New York City. Give examples. I'm a pu- Give us the. Gist. I'm a pu- I'm a public school parent in New York City, mm-hmm. and in New York City, we've got two major dick swingers mm-hmm. who are screwing us around right now. There is Mayor Bill De Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo, mm-hmm. and the thing that prompted this column was a particular squabble that they had about whether or not the public schools in New York City are going to stay closed for the rest of the year. The answer presumably is yes. But what happened is that Bill de Blasio, the mayor, made an announcement about 10 days ago that the schools were going to stay closed for the rest of the year and was promptly contradicted by the state's governor, Andrew Cuomo, who said, that's his opinion. He doesn't have the power to close the schools. Well, that, A, is news to me. And B, I don't care which one of you has the power to make this call. I care whether or not the schools are going to be open. And I care about that because, especially because the New York City schools, which are 1.1 million students, 750,000 of them low-income families. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, more than 100,000 of them homeless. The question of whether or not schools are open every day for the next two and a half months, they've already been closed for over a month. That affects everything about how those students, their families, plus the teachers, the cafeteria workers, the janitors, all uh, this is this is life shifting. And I do not care which of these two guys, both of whom wield an enormous amount of political power over our daily lives. I don't care which one of them has more authority. What I want from them is a kind of leadership that's just going to tell us how we who are affected by these decisions need to proceed and what we can expect in in this horrifying time when people are sick, broke, they're seeing their livelihoods and their possibility for economic stability go out the window. There's childcare. All forms of childcare are sort of falling apart at the seams. These are actually daily struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't care which one of you has the authority. So, I don't care. Yeah, it's, Scott, it's, please well, jump in. You're, there's a lot of, uh, and you've written about it, there's a lot of interesting um, pieces around female leadership around the nation mm-hmm. and how, as it relates to gun control, as it relates to handling the pandemic, that the countries that have handled the pandemic the best, whether it's Germany with fantastic testing and the lowest mortality rate or New Zealand, and it just never got that bad, is, is female leadership. And... Uh, also, by the way, there's some just awful female leaders, Christina Fernandez and Argentina. Yeah, I was there's some corrupt say. leaders. But the question I have is the following. I have two questions. One, is it something genetic? There is research showing that, quite frankly, is that women value relationships more, are better at consensus building. And by the way, when you say that, that's not sexist. But when you say men are more aggressive, which results in bigger, loftier goals, then you're a sexist and a misogynist. So one is it in fact that it's not a function of men and women being different, but the skills that women need to survive in a political environment where very little few yeah. women are allowed to rise to the top? And two, can we have an open conversation that says, 
All right, biology is sexist. Men and women generally bring different attributes or they're predisposed to different attributes. Not to say that a lot of women don't have very masculine qualities and a lot of men don't have very feminine qualities, but we don't seem to want to have an open conversation around the difference between men and women unless we're constantly praising women and saying guys are fucking idiots. That's the only acceptable Mm -hmm. narrative. So uh, my view is very much that it's not inherent or biological. But of course, this is all theoretical right. because the reality is we live in a world, it, it, you know, I, and we're, we're talking about this country and it's sort of political and financial leadership. We're talking about all these different kinds of power. We live in a world in which the institutions and the systems were built by and around white, male, straight yep. power. Yep. And so everything or that has happened straight. here publicly straight publicly straight right so everything that has happened here has happens in reaction to or within those systems yeah. if women had a disproportionate grip on power, anything like the disproportionate grip that men and especially white men have had on power in this country, you would see all the same kinds of corruption and ill behavior because how you treat power depends in part on your relationship. To power it. corrupts. And so, That's the yes, bottom line. Power, power corrupts. Yeah. And also, once you assume that you have a right to it, then you fight with other people 100%. for it. Whereas if you're on the outside of it, you need to develop all kinds of skills, conciliatory skills, working together skills. I mean, this is, you can see this not just around gender, you can see it everywhere. If you look at organizing, um, you know, why does organizing happen when you come, when it comes to labor movement, a civil rights movement, um, a women's movement, a gay rights movement, uh, Organizing happens when people who are shut out from power yeah. in one angle, from one angle or another work together to gain more power. You can't be a powerless person who just goes charging forward and throws your dick on the table, metaphorically, right? Because nobody cares. But if you're the person who has power, then you're constantly working to protect it and stave off any challenge to it. So I'm going to shift to Biden. Um, he's the presumptive nominee <laughs> uh, of Democratic Party. Um, mm. uh, uh, not as much of a dick swinger, I think. I think we can all agree. Um, mm. well, yeah, although maybe, no, not as not as much. much. Right, right, not as much. Um, but more we of have, a dick uh, swear. More of a swear. swear. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Oh, oh, thank you, oh, Scott. No, Scott. I am my eyes. My eyes. Oh, all right, no. listen. All right. So yeah, one God. of the things was he's promised to have a vice presidential candidate who's a woman, uh, which several <laughs> people recently have said that was a mistake on his part. He should have waited. Um, uh, but what 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 do you think about that? And and, and when you and the accusations that emerged that he sexually assaulted a staffer in the 1990s. Okay. How mm-hmm. what wh- how do you look at this race in terms of a topic you write about a lot, which is women's mm, leadership? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I was anything other than pretty depressed about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been a long time critic of Joe Biden on feminist grounds mm-hmm. for reasons really having to do with gender. And I'm t- first, let me speak about preceding mm-hmm. the his gaining the nomination. I wrote a really long piece a, about a year ago about all of my reservations around Joe Biden. I have a lot of feminist anxiety about Joe Biden and not just Joe Biden in particular, but the kind of politician that he is. That said, he's going to be the nominee running against Donald Trump. And so what do we do with with this situation? Now, he said he's going to nominate a woman. (laughs) Here's my wish. Right? Like, I think everybody should nominate a woman. We have never elected a woman vice president or president in this country. And that is an 
utter embarrassment. It's a travesty. It's ridiculous. We should be furious about it every day, as well as all the other kinds of people we've never elected to executive office in this country or at representational rates. Terrific. But don't just say I'm going to nominate, actually nominate a woman, not pick a woman, a specific woman, because it makes a lot of difference whether the woman... Like, which woman? What are you communicating to us other than, hey, I've got a great idea. Let me pick a member of a gender that's never been <laughs> vice president before. Which one? Is it Amy Klobuchar? Because that's a very different woman from, say, Barbara Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, who uh, is it going to be Gretchen Whitmer or is it going to be Kamala Harris? Is it going to be Stacey Abrams or is it going to be Elizabeth Warren? I mean, I'm talking about all kinds of people who are being discussed for this job. Those people are so different in terms of who they are, um, what their priorities are, what their politics are, where they are ideologically and politically. And to me, the frustrating thing about him saying, I'm going to pick a woman It's like, well, how I feel about that woman is going to depend very much on actually which woman she is, because women come in a variety of flavors. Wasn't that a mistake? Wasn't it even even if it's true, even if it's like they're overdue and it just made sense for a lot of reasons? Wasn't it a mistake to say, I'm going to pick a woman? Shouldn't he have picked somebody and talked about her character, her leadership, her competence, and not mention the fact that she was a woman? It just, aren't we playing into the worst instincts around around identity politics and sexism that we've been complaining about forever? It's like, what if some guy had said, don't worry, I don't know who my VP is, but I know it's going to be a white dude. How is this any different? Well, I I resist inverse comparisons like that. because I just think the circumstances are so different. When Inverse he's comparisons. To You're swinging your dick right now. You're swinging your dick. <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant, but yeah, go it's ahead. Very go. Well, but just the, it's very well, impressive. Well, no, just the, if you did this with a white man, because the whole valent, right? I, I, you know, it would be, yes, it, it, it would be bad, but for a different set of reasons. Because if you said, um, I'm going to pick a white man, then it's like, oh, just like every white man who came before you, right? right. And, and whereas if you say, I'm going to pick a woman, then you're signaling an intention to disrupt. He needs yeah. to do right? it. We were talking about this last week, Kara, that we got a lot of reaction. We said, he just needs to pick, all right, just get on with it and get her, yeah. him or her, ideally her, out there and start pushing back. Start, yeah. start, anyways. So what, who was your pick, uh, Rebecca? Who was your pick? Oh, speaking of women come in all flavors and it matters who he picks. Well, you know, there's a reason I'm not a political strategist. <laughs> so who is your pick and who let me do the two that we're going to finish out. Who is your pick and who would you think he will pick? Uh, well, I don't have a clue who he'll pick. I'll tell you the the women, the politicians. You can pick men who if you like. I would like to see uh, put in charge of this are, for example, I mean, I named a couple of them. Barbara Lee. Certainly, um, you know, who's a who's a member of Congress from California, who has long been sort of the most progressive uh, member of the House of Representatives um, and is just an excellent politician. I love Barbara Lee. She would be among my top choices. Elizabeth Warren, who I think would be uh, really perfect for this moment and this crisis, um, you know, having the kind of experience and knowledge she does about economic recovery um, and having, uh, you know, supervised elements of the 2008 recovery. I think Warren would be a great pick. Um, uh, You know, uh, my politics 
tend to lean left. So those are sort of... Shocker. Oh, st- Shocker. oh wait, 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 wait. No, I forgot one of my... Stacey Abrams, who I... Stacey Abrams is an extraordinary politician who's um, absolutely driven to address uh, voter suppression, mm-hmm. and which, of course, is one of the sort of emergency situations as we move into 2020 and beyond. And, you know, with a, a Republican Party and a court system that is every day working to disenfranchise people, this has been Stacey Abrams' passion well in advance of her gubernatorial yeah. run. Um, and I think Stacey would, and I think she's also just an excellent politician. So Stacey is also one of my top choices, I think. All right, Rebecca, everybody should read her piece. Rebecca Traster. It's called uh, Enough with the Dick Swinging. We really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back next for Wins and Fails. All right, Scott, we're back. What did you What did you think of Rebecca Traster? Isn't she a bag of donuts, speaking of bag of donuts? <laughs> bag of donuts, yeah. That's our new colleague, our new work colleague I, over I at New York Magazine. Yes, yeah, they're sassy over there. Yeah. They're sassy. They're yeah. like us. You know what I mean? They're like yeah. us. They're very sassy people. Um, okay, wins and fails. What are they for you? Uh, uh, my, my win is a, uh, I, this is more of a rant than it is win and fail. I, I think that it's really interesting over the last 72 hours that this reopen movement has gained so much momentum. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, uh, supposedly South Carolina is on the verge of reopening. Texas is going to be next. And I work with or have worked with about a third of the 100 largest consumer organizations, CMOs. That's what I used to do is advise CMOs. And they would always say the same thing. And that is, how do I get more authority? This is an invented job. I have no authority. And I'm like, it's not about authority. It's about credibility. And you want to be the guy or the gal that shows up with so much data that there's a pull into every conversation. And they constantly use you and your data as rationalization for their actions and their capital allocation. And what we have here in my loss is what I call the new proxy war. And proxy wars are effectively in the 20th century. A direct confrontation between Russia and the U.S. might result in nuclear holocaust. So we started backing belligerents, whether it was the North or the South Vietnamese and the, or uh, different entities in Afghanistan. And it ended up scarring our nation. It ended up bankrupting Russia. And it, these, these proxy wars can go on longer because you're not forced. You can hide behind a car when you throw water balloons. And they can go on longer and end up doing more damage. And what we have now is a proxy war, unfortunately— with governors who are on the ground and don't want to reopen, and they're using their belligerents, our CNN. Literally, CNN is the walking governor talk show of people who don't want to reopen. And now the belligerents on behalf of Trump are him organizing on Facebook these far-right organizations to, to, to conduct these protests, which embarrass the governors. And these proxy wars can not only end up going longer, they're dangerous and they're unproductive. So we have just the worst type of proxy war taking place right now. And what they should do, the win or the opportunity, is a governor should say, let's get together all 50 governors and we need to create two lines. The first line is the line of structural damage as time on the x-axis, structural damage to the economy on the y-axis, and figure out at what point does the structural long-term damage to the economy become just really bad? Is it asymptotic? Has it leveled yeah. off? Does it decline? For some reason, 85 days, does it really start to de- descend and get really bad for the economy? What does the line look like? And then let's look at the line examining the apex of the relapse. And that is, if we go 10 days too early, if we open 10 days too early, does that mean in November, the relapse is much worse than it could be now if you didn't? You take those two lines, you meet with all 50 governors, 
You meet with the smartest people in the room around economics, around health and human services. And then the federal government, let's go back to W. If, if Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney, who was maybe, you know, you maybe didn't like his politics, but he was a competent guy, and Hank Paulson and the Director of Health and Human Services all showed up to all these states and said, these are our lines. What are your lines? And then they worked together to say, all right, let's come up with a 10 or a 15-day window around reopening, and we're going to give you some resources to help you reopen responsibly. We could have a fantastic, we could have, you know, what America is supposed to be, that we come together and craft better solutions. Instead, we have a proxy war. And the governors, the call to the governors right now, what they should do is they should announce this meeting and they should invite the president. And then the president should have the same meeting and invite the governors. And then they are forced to no longer have a proxy war and come out in a press conference and say to the American people, we figured this out and this is how we're working together or not. But instead, they're having these bullshit proxy wars. Anyways, my my fail is proxy yeah, you're wars. You're operating with a different. You're operating with a different personality at the top. At the top, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to no, happen. There's no amount of power Trump will grab if he can get it, and his people. I just uh, they see it as an opportunity. But what if the governors went got ahead of him and just said all 50 of us are meeting to talk about reopening? The president you're is not invited. Get, there's not going to that crazy from North Dakota. You're not going to okay. Get 47 of them. of them. Don't you think most I, of them? My sense is the governors are coming together. That's how uh, I sense? do. I do. I, I do. I, I sense they are. I just think wrangling 50 people is hard. And I think that that's Zoom. even in a crisis. <laughs> Zoom, even in a crisis. So I do think that it, getting this together is really who takes the lead, which one's the lead. You know, I don't like him. I just, I, I, I find it, it's a perfect situation for, for one person messing up everything. It's, it's, like, it plays it's just, into the virus's hands. Like my fail this week, which is Candace Owens' ridiculous tweet about going to Whole Foods, which is also my Whole Foods. And she doesn't, well, she got kicked out because she wasn't wearing a mask and having a fit about it. And I was like, you didn't get your kombucha? I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Apparently she just does. She, what it was amazing was the idea that, just like you're saying with these people who want to get back to work, there's nobody who doesn't want to get back to work. It's the idea of, of making other people sick. Um, and so her concern was not that she had to wear a mask, isn't this America? It was that there's people in the store, including workers that would get sick if you are not wearing it. And they're asking you to. Yeah. And the science is very, like, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but it certainly mitigates it to the positive um, going forward. And the idea that you can't just do that for other people is just so symptomatic of this Republican Party, which is, I got mine, give me, you know, grab, you know, there's money at the trough. Uh, same thing with the grabbing of the PPP. It's the same thing. It's it's the same concept. So it's a real, it's a real, people, it's easy to make fun of Kansas Owens because she's such a ridiculous ass clown. Um, but it's just, uh, you just have to, you have to, it's, it's symptomatic of a larger issue, which is like, are you not thinking of other people? And, I, you know, all of us have our selfishness, but it, it, it's astonishing that there's people who stop in their selfishness and, and think about the broader group. So that would be my fail. But I agree with you. I think they should get together. That would be nice. I think the they governors, won't. I think they could force the president to the table. My sense is the governors, and they're they're on both sides of the aisle, which is really nice to see. The governor from Rhode Island. There's DeWine strikes me as incredibly reasonable. Yeah. Um, right. I think there's a big opportunity for the governors here to basically shame the federal government into coming to the table and to craft a joint solution. I think they've yeah, for this around testing, around this, the fact, seeing pictures of Korea and Germany going back to work, it was just so yeah, galling. Yeah. It was so, not that they did it, I'm proud for them to have done it, but they're out in cafes, they're doing things. It just was galling. That well, like, I, I feel like we live in a third world country. If you're on the right, worse. if you're on the right, and of course they won't use this argument, but the best argument they could have around reopening 
but they won't do it because part of American exceptionalism is to somehow think that nothing out of Europe is any good. The best mm-hmm. argument for reopening is Sweden. I don't know if you've seen what Sweden's done, but basically yeah. Sweden never really, never really shut down. But what they've done is they've done exceptional distancing, uh, distinct of a shutdown. And it yeah. looks as if in terms of infections and deaths that they've managed what they've managed better than anyone else an ability to, to thread the needle between not a total shutdown that creates structural damage to the economy and still maintaining pretty decent public health, it looks like. But the Republicans and the reopeners, I'll call them, don't ever want to acknowledge we might get a good idea from Europe. You know, we escape from Europe. Anything yeah. they can do, we can do better. But it's actually very interesting how Sweden has approached this. Yeah. I mean, these mask deniers and COVID idiots are just like... COVID li- idiots. That's good. I hadn't heard that. They really do not know how they want something and they don't want to do what it takes to make it happen. It's just, I, I just, it's just an astonishing situation we find ourselves in, in 2020. All right, win, win, Scott. Uh, okay. I bought my kids a Nerf gun and we've been shooting at each other like at oh, close range. Oh, Nerf guns are fun. fun. Nerf and they're fun. I'm trying to think of a yeah. win, a win, a win, a win, a win. Uh, no, there aren't any wins this week. We're going to have no wins. Any good TV? I'm sorry, Any Rebecca. good TV in your life? Uh, Homeland, the end of Homeland is so good. Mandy Patinkin is so good, and the guy Ben Savage played him. The end of Homeland is don't spoil so it. I'm on episode eight. Good, it's, it's really good, it huh? So good. Um, I will see you later this week. Uh, try not to have too much fun in the meantime, and don't forget if there's a story in the news that you're curious about and want to hear our opinion on, email us at pivot at voxmedia.com to be featured on the show. Scott, please read us out. Today's episode was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Our executive producer is Erica Anderson. Special thanks to Drew Burrows and Rebecca Castro. If you like what you heard, please download or subscribe. And we'll see you later in the week for a breakdown of all things tech and business.